You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so excited and thankful to be joined today by Stan Gordon. Stan is one of the most experienced UFO and paranormal researchers on the planet with over 60 years of research into the subjects. He has been conducting research and giving lectures since 1969. He is the premier investigator of the Kecksburg PA UFO crash incident and produced an award-winning documentary on the subject titled Kecksburg, The Untold Story. He is the author of three books and has been featured on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, Unsolved Mysteries, the Sci-Fi Channel, Coast to Coast AM, among many others. Links to his website and books can be found in the show notes. We can only aspire to such a prolific and powerful career in anything, let alone something so wildly fascinating as Stan. Stan Gordon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Tom, for having me on the program. Yeah. So, Stan, I think your personal story is so interesting. It would be a great way to color some of the topics uh, that we're going to be discussing by diving into you and what really lit this fire for you. Would you mind uh, maybe taking us back to 1959 when you first got into these subjects? Yeah, I started uh, when I was 10 years old back in, as you said, 1959. It was just by, I guess, sheer coincidence that my birthday was during the Halloween season, and I received a birthday gift from my parents as an AM radio. And uh, that evening, I was uh, tuning in the radio on the AM radio band, and there were some radio shows talking about strange occurrences. They were talking about ghosts and haunted houses and flying saucers and strange creatures and I was very curious. I wanted to know if people were making these stories up or if these are real. So I went to our local library and began to read everything they had on the subject. I began to watch the newspapers and the magazines carefully, and I began to cut articles out, make scrapbooks. And I was 16 years old in 1965 when the UFO, whatever it was, fell near Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. And I started documenting that case as it broke on the news uh, that evening. And I've been out in the field ever since then investigating all kind of phenomena here in Pennsylvania. And my my first pretty good-sized involvement was around late 60s. There was a uh, research group in Pittsburgh, a small group. It was mainly some engineers and other professionals. And I was the youngster of the group, as I recall, but I became their telephone sighting coordinator. That was called the UFO Research Institute. So when they would get a report, I would do the initial interview and I would uh, follow up with the uh, witness and see if the case warranted further research and investigation. And I did that until they closed down their operation. And I decided in 1969 I was going to set up my own hotline for the public to report UFO sightings. So um, I began to make contact with some of the local news media and the police departments. And within a few weeks, the, the phone in my house at the time was just ringing day and night with calls coming in. It was about anything unusual, not just UFOs. People were calling about anything strange from alleged hauntings to strange sounds and strange footprints and unusual sightings. And it got to the point very quickly that I realized this was more than I could do on my own. So it was my goal to try to set up a group of volunteer people, research people, to investigate these reports. So that's what I did. In 1970, I founded the first of three research groups, and they were all volunteer. And the first group was called the Westmoreland County UFO Study Group. We started here in Greensburg, and then we proceeded into the greater Pittsburgh area. And uh, those who got involved, I, I was amazed. And uh, even uh, for so many years later, many of these people, because of their positions, they wanted to keep anonymous. So we had uh, scientists and engineers from 
Uh, a lot of the corporations around Pittsburgh, such as Alcoa, Golf Westinghouse, from there were people from colleges and universities. I had uh, former military uh, people. I had police officers, all kind of specialists. And um, we all did this voluntarily around our full-time jobs. And with my electronics background, I set up a pretty elaborate radio communication center in my home and a two-way radio dispatch system so we could dispatch some of the investigators out to the scene. By 1973, we had extended to cover the state of Pennsylvania, and we were busy all the time with multitudes of reports coming in, and we were surprised where we were getting the calls from. We were getting referrals from police departments, from news media, and it was just an unending thing. So we were very busy, and we were lucky that we were set up because that massive wave occurs in 1973. First with UFOs and then with Bigfoot, which, of course, we can talk about uh, a little later on. And that's basically how it began for me. And now, almost 61 years later, my hotline is still as active as before. Calls come in all the time. Reports come in all the time, as recent as this morning from last night. Between email reports and, and call, phone call reports, I get many reports in here on a regular basis. That's absolutely fantastic, and it's so kind of almost serendipitous that you got that gift at that radio and kind of completely launched into it. There's a Mark Twain quote that reminds me of your situation. It says, the uh, the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day that you find out why, and it seems almost like that can really apply there. There's two parts of uh, what you were just telling me about that where I actually had as, as follow-up questions. As far as the organizations go, in, in our world of punk rock music where I come from, there's a strong DIY ethic uh, where we lack the infrastructure for having our own shows and concerts and recording our own music and printing our own merch outside of the typical bars and the established music industry at the time. And it's a really uh, big source of pride. And I see the same drive in your life and your field to become the organizers. A, a long and profound history of civilian UFO investigation networks and some of the ones founded by you, like the Pennsylvania Center for UFO Research. And my favorite named, which I think is a great name, the Pennsylvania Association for the Study of the Unexplained. So cool. Can Yeah, can you walk us through a little bit of your organizational efforts and how you were able to actually build and maintain those? I know it was a day before the internet, so did you kind of like... Was it like a, a networking thing from them knowing people previously in the first organization that you were in, manning the uh, communications? Well, I had those organizations for many, many years. I, I was also the Pennsylvania State MUFON director for many years, so I was basically, for many times, many years back then, uh, operating two separate research groups. <laughs> so it was very, very busy with many, many people involved in it. And like I said, I, I had family, I was working full-time, and we had no funding. So basically it's all out of our own pocket. So I did that for many, many years, but since about, I guess, about November of 93, I've been working as an independent researcher, but I still maintain contact with a lot of contacts out in the field. Uh, there's a lot of younger researchers out there now that are also doing research, and so I'm in touch with many of these people. Unfortunately, so many of the people in my group from years ago are, unfortunately, have passed on. Others are, you know, up in age. We're all getting up in age now. And, but I still have contact. There's still some of those people around that I still have contact with as well. But, I mean, back in the day when we had our group for years and years, I mean, we were very active. We had regular monthly meetings. We had training meetings. We had all kind of experts that taught us how to interview people, how to make castings out in the field, how to gather samples for labs, how to use the equipment. I mean, we, we were very, for that time period, what we had, we were... We did okay for not having any funding, but there was so much more we could have done if we had funding to do it and we had the time to do it, and we were limited on both. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, and I, that's one point that I tend to bring up when I'm talking to my friends and family about the UFO phenomenon, some explained phenomena, is that the, that infrastructure is very serious. Like, as you just mentioned, you guys had training sessions. Uh, there was protocol that you created to follow. And I think that a lot of people don't um, understand just how organized and, and serious it is. And what goes with that is also just the sheer number. There's such an enormous amount of unexplained cases uh, regionally, nationally, globally, that it just, when you look at the actual numbers, it's kind of mind-blowing. And another part that you had mentioned earlier was, uh, and I've read from a couple different sources, including some of your reports, is that there are kind of like, not necessarily silent partners, but people involved from the professional field, like engineers, military personnel, doctors, business people, lending a hand on the periphery when it comes to the UFO research. And I was wondering if you could uh, touch a bit upon that, like some of the people that didn't necessarily want to be associated with it, but were very helpful behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's what it was. I mean, Dr. Heineck would have called the Invisible College because so many of these people had has big positions in major corporations in the research community, some in colleges and universities. And a lot of these guys work with me, men and women work with me for years voluntarily to go investigate the reports. And I can tell you, a lot of these key people came in very skeptical. And many of those people spent years with me out in the field and they began to see what I was seeing. They interviewed, the, they got, you got to remember again, during that time period, we would commonly be on the scene within minutes to hours after it happened, after an incident happened. Wow. So we were documenting everything as it was new information. So you could see the emotions of the witnesses. You got the details correctly because they were new. It was fresh. You saw the physical evidence. Sometimes you saw the animal reactions. And that's what was so amazing. And some of these research people were very skeptical. Over years, they began to see the similarities, you began to see the patterns, and they began to realize, yep, there's something going on here. We just don't understand what it is. And um, so that's just a situation which has always been like that. And witnesses, I mean, even today, I'm in contact with witnesses constantly. A lot of new witnesses and people have had old reports they never reported before. And the high percentage of people, and I'm talking about probably 98%, 99% of the people I interview want no publicity whatsoever. They have no reason to make up the story. They have nothing to gain. And, I mean, you get calls from people from all walks of life, men, women, children, from engineers, from scientists, from school teachers, police officers, pilots, air traffic controllers. I've interviewed all these people over the years, and they have absolutely no reason to make up the story. Basically, they, they come to you, and their first thing they're saying is, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I, I saw this, and I want to know if anybody else saw it. And one of the first things to say is just don't use my name and that's very very common yeah i find that uh kind of bizarre and it's one thing i've noticed over my own like amateur research and just enthusiasm over the years is that there seems to be a bizarre kind of parallel or dichotomy dichotomy that exists where we watch movies about the um, extraterrestrial phenomena or ufos and we most when you poll people in the united states most of them think that we're not alone in fact a, a large number of people think that we have been visited by extraterrestrial or interdimensional or robotic people from another time or civilization and people take that seriously but then when it comes to the actual seriousness of the matter and taking it actually into an analytical approach there's a stigma that exists that i just i don't really understand you know why people would associate ufos with not being serious well you know a lot of these people because they're positions they just didn't want to take a chance of people thinking they were crazy or making stories up, and that's how it, how it has always been. I mean, the interest 
from the public in recent years is getting more and more positive. People are more and more interested. And, of course, if you've been monitoring the news media in the last few years, right through the last couple of weeks, there's a lot more focus now on the UFO phenomena, and it's being taken much more seriously now. And people aren't laughing like they used to. I mean, I, up until the virus uh, hit Pennsylvania, I was giving multitudes of lectures every year and, and uh, getting very big crowds, all kinds of groups, some professionals, and people were getting very, very interested in the phenomena, and Bigfoot as well. And, you know, it, the interest is out there, there's no doubt, and, and there's so much media coverage, I, I should say. There's news coverage, but there's also a lot of new shows, a lot of radio discussion about the topics now, and people are very intrigued, and they want to learn more. Absolutely. It's been quite a time for US, uh, UFOs in the news recently with the Navy releasing the Tic Tac UFO videos in April, as well as even this past Tuesday, members of the U.S. Senate committee asked the Pentagon to release a new report because they felt that the information wasn't uh, up to up to par for them. Right. And that's very interesting. And that, that's great that at least some of this is coming to the attention more and more of the public and the fact that you have trained pilots who are encountering these things. But that's been going on for years and years. I've interviewed multitudes of former military, corporate, commercial pilots, private pilots who have seen these things. I've interviewed air traffic controllers who have seen them. I mean, this has been going on for years and years. But I think what the media is missing, because I deal with these cases constantly, is the fact that you have these objects being observed continuously in Pennsylvania and all across the country, but I do mainly in PA, of course, but you have these incidents over major metropolitan areas. You have these things hovering over highways, trace following vehicles, hovering low at intersections in, in major towns, and people don't know about this. This is not something that's going on once a year. This is going on all year round. You get reports every single year. I get reports at all type of weather conditions from beautiful afternoons to thunderstorms. And, I mean, I have, interview, I have investigated multitudes of incidents of not just lights in the sky, but large structured objects very close to the ground. And these are going on even in recent years. Even in recent months, we've had some amazing cases coming in. And this is what the media is missing. It's an ongoing phenomena, and people are not realizing how much of this is probably going on. I'm sure there's many more reports going on than what we're hearing. Oh, absolutely. And that's why I go back to what I said before, that one of the uh, things that people don't realize is the sheer number of uh, reported UFO cases is just so enormous that it's it's like a bit concerning at first. You know, it's, you, you wouldn't imagine you think that there'd be maybe a couple a month or something like that. But in reality, it's it's every day. And a lot of them can't be explained. Right. And, and the whole point is there is no one depository for reports. I mean, my hotline's been open since 1969. I received many reports from different resources. You got the National UFO Reporting Center. You got MUFON. You got multitudes of small groups. You got individual researchers. Everybody's getting reports. Nobody knows exactly how many there are, or how many are explainable, and how many are unidentifiable. I mean, because I receive a UFO report, that doesn't necessarily mean it's unexplained, because I'm able to track down and identify a lot of those reports. But every year we're getting detailed cases you cannot easily dismiss. And, I mean, some of these cases, and I, I can give you some examples of some historically and even talk about some re more recent reports, but some of these cases are something you just you cannot just easily explain away. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to hear, especially if there's any more recent ones that you have on your mind. Well, uh, again, I'll tell you, 2018 and 2019 
were extremely active with reports. And surprisingly, 2020, even with the virus and the fact that a lot of people have not been outside and are starting to return more, but I mean, I have pages and pages of of reports here of all kind of phenomena uh, in Pennsylvania, basically, uh, of sightings. And from myself and from other researchers and other resources, and it's just a lot of interesting reports coming in. And uh, some of these are daylight reports. But I'll, and I'll tell you, in the last few years, you're getting a lot of reports, even daylight, of large, solid, elliptical, cigar-shaped objects being reported. And all, most of the time, these things are all completely silent. They make no sound whatsoever. We're get, in the last number of years, last several years, you're getting more reports of large, rectangular objects, even uh, in daylight, hovering over trees. And, of course, we always get the triangular objects. And, and what fascinates me, because so many people have never heard of this before, but I've been dealing with this other phenomena since the 1960s, what I call the mini, U, mini UFOs, because they're very interesting. These things are generally only a few inches to a foot or two in diameter, but sometimes they're, they're bigger and there's other configurations, but mainly spherical, sometimes they're solid metallic, Sometimes they're transparent, and sometimes they're just bright light sources of different colors. What's so intriguing about them, even in daylight, I mean, they'll, they'll come right up, they'll float right up to people very close. Wow. They'll hover right over top of their heads and come right up to them. I have, there's numerous cases where they've entered people's homes and cars through open windows, and then they float around and they go back out. Sometimes I've had reports of them in people's homes, and they go right through the wall. I've had them pace cars and come into vehicles, as I mentioned before. So these are very, very intriguing. And, and again, it's something a lot of people are not aware of, but this is going on year after year. And, uh, and I'll give you a couple more recent reports um, from last year, 2019. This was investigated by one of my research associates, Jim Brown, up in Fayette County. Fayette County here in Pennsylvania. A lot of these incidents occur along the Chestnut Ridge. You may have heard me talk about this in the past. I have, But yes. the Chestnut Ridge... It's one of the most active areas in the country for ongoing phenomena year after year. So the ridge goes uh, through Westmoreland, Fayette, and Indiana County in southwest Pennsylvania, extends down towards Preston County, West Virginia, outside of Morgantown, West Virginia. Up in this area, Westmoreland, Fayette County, very active year after year, including this year, with reports of UFOs and, and Bigfoot and cryptids and other anomalies going on year after year. But uh, here's one of these cases in daylight. This happened on no, the early November of 2019, and uh, Jim investigated this, and a witness was uh, riding down this road on his way home. He went over the top of a rise, and he sees this ball on the road just sitting there. It's about two feet across, and it's blocking the road. So he can't pass on the road without this thing being removed, and he has no idea what this thing is. He sat there for a moment, he said, and he decided to go and go up and move this thing, whatever it was. He even thought about picking up and taking it home because it looked so unusual. But he said when he opened the car door and he began to move toward it, it began to suddenly just fade away and disappear. And in a few seconds, it just vanished and it was gone. It never moved, it just faded away. I mean, you've got so many strange reports like this. And to make it an even stranger phenomenon, you know, I've been talking about the UFO and Bigfoot Association for years and years from the massive wave of 73 when some very strange things showed up. But 
we're hearing more reports of strange light phenomena, small spheres of light and other light phenomena associated with Bigfoot sightings or in areas where there's a lot of Bigfoot activity. And just outside of Pittsburgh last year in early May, early morning hours, a man happened to look out his back window, uh, a lot of woods around there, and he sees a smaller Bigfoot creature, about four and a half to five feet tall, which we've had reports of smaller ones as well over the years, covered with long, dark hair, long, dark hair, and it's walking upright on two legs, and the arms are very long, almost down to the knees, and he can see his arms swinging as it walks off towards the woods, and it enters um, a, a certain area along the wood line. Within three seconds after it entered that position at the same location where it went in, a bright sphere of light about three to four inches in diameter suddenly appears. He said it was similar like the front of a flashlight, but about it was about four feet off the ground. The light then moved a short distance for a few seconds and disappeared. About four to five seconds later, it reappears about 10 feet away, and this small sphere emits a bright beam of light about 10 to 12 feet ahead of it, and the beam disappears, and the light goes out, and that was it. So wow. these, there's more and more strange things going on out there. Yeah, it certainly certainly is. I, uh, I'm not very familiar with the UFO and Bigfoot connection, but it's something I really want to read into more. And as far as the small light objects and things that people see going to uh, come, it makes complete sense that why would any type of alien spacecraft or you know interdimensional consciousness or anything like that be reflective of the size of our crafts and bodies like a, there could be a ufo that would be an inch long or maybe one that was completely massive depending on the location or area that they would be coming from so that that makes complete sense uh, i was wondering if we could hopefully shift to kexburg so for the kexburg ufo incident i first heard about it when i was younger i think possibly from an uncle uncle i don't remember exactly but uh, you're the primary investigator, uh, it's safe to say. I've watched your documentary, Kexburg, The Untold Story. It's extremely compelling. Uh, I know this story is quite involved and your knowledge is huge, but is there any possibility for we could get like a short recap? I know it began with a phenomenon occurring over Toronto, uh, Detroit. It was seen in six states, and then it turned and crashed um, in Kexburg outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, which is in the southwest corner of the state. Yeah, it's it's a we could talk for days about Kexburg. I've <laughs> I've been working on that since the day it broke back on December ninth, nineteen sixty five. I was sixteen years old. Of course, I was already interested in this type of phenomena, but I had a special reason why I was tuned in to listen to a radio station in Pittsburgh that night on KDK to a radio talk show called Contact because they had a special guest coming on. His name was Frank Edwards. You might recognize the name. He was a journalist who had written some books on strange occurrences. And I wanted to see what Frank Edwards was going to discuss. And most interestingly, almost the entire program is uh, focusing on this breaking news story, this brilliant fiery object was seen from the tip of Ontario, Canada, and reported from Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And it's around 4.47 p.m., just getting dark in the Pittsburgh area, when multiple reports, reports are coming into the police departments or radio and TV and newspapers from multiple witnesses. So this object apparently came in over the greater Pittsburgh area, and there was a lot we didn't know as it's breaking on the news at that time. I began to write down and document information as the reports are coming across Pittsburgh radio and television that night, and reports were that whatever the object was, it apparently fell into a wooded ravine here in Westmoreland County, about 12 miles from where I live in the little village of Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. 
And the evening got much more exciting when reports came in that the military was now arriving in that farming community to search for an unidentified flying object. So what we find out was, and again, there was much we did not know in the days after, but what we found out later was that as this is being broadcast, hundreds of people from western Pennsylvania descend on that little farming community to try to get a look at what the object is down in the woods. And not only did you have many civilians there, but you had representatives of all the news media there, from radio, TV, and newspapers. So they all, I interviewed all, I tracked down all those reporters and a lot of the news crews and people who were there that night who became a part of the story because they either were witnesses to some of the activity or they interacted or saw the military activity that night. So it's very, very well documented. And what we didn't know back at that time was the fact that a number of the local people who saw the object coming across the sky and went down into the woods they soon went down in the woods themselves to see what the object was. Some people initially thought it was an aircraft that was on fire. And what I found out later was that some of these people came across this large metallic acorn-shaped object, semi-buried in the ground. It's big enough for a person to stand inside of, from what they could tell. It was kind of an off-gold bronze color. It was shaped like a big metallic acorn, but it had no no weld marks, no seams, no rivet marks on it. It was one solid piece of metal. One witness who stood within feet of it told me, he said, it looked like somebody took liquid metal and poured it into an acorn-shaped mold. But at the raised-up back of the object, what he called the bumper area, he said there were these raised-up markings around the rim that looked more like some type of odd symbols than any type of writing. And luckily, because of his family background, he was familiar with what Cyrillic or, or Russian would look like or Soviet at the time. And he said, that was not what it was. It was completely different. And um, so it, it's a very interesting story. So what we found out later was first you had civilians that went down to the scene. Then you had volunteer firemen coming in, some who came across the site looking for a possible downed aircraft. Then you had the military came in, who, of course, once they got in, they secured the area, everybody was chased out. They didn't know that apparently some of the locals had got down in there before they arrived. So it's a fascinating, long story, and I've concentrated on the activity that night and the multitudes of people. I've tracked down hundreds of people who were involved in the incident or who have information on it and what they experienced around that area that night, what they saw, how people interacted with the military. And I think probably one of the most interesting things that independent people have told us was that you had armed soldiers come into people's private farmland or private property and aim weapons at other civilians to prevent them going down into the woods where the object was. So where did that jurisdiction come from, and what was so important down there they didn't want the public to see? Absolutely. That's a, a huge element. And as far as the uh, anecdotal evidence goes, it's extremely compelling. The interviews that you've collected, recorded, and e even the interviews in the documentary are, are very, very powerful. And as far as the documentation goes, so, well, there are some very aspects in the form of records and newspaper articles, uh, such as the, I think it was the Greensboro Tribune, uh, that record is there. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the court case and the subsequent result of the Sci-Fi Channel suing NASA regarding their evidence concerning the Kexberg case. Well, that, that's a long story, and unfortunately, I don't have a lot of my notes from, like, sure, from so sure. many years ago, but it was about 2002 
that the Sci-Fi Channel was supporting a new group called the Coalition of Freedom, Coalition for Freedom of Information, and Leslie Kane, who was an investigative journalist, was the one who was who in charge of that investigation. And I worked closely with them, and they were able to do a great amount of investigation and detail on the case. So they had a lot of capabilities. Unfortunately, I didn't, but they were able to track down a lot of information. They had some of the best researchers in the country. They did research on it nationally and internationally to find out information. They were able to eliminate a lot of possibilities of what this thing may have been. They did a lot of freedom of information investigation on it. And basically, they ended up uh, filing a lawsuit on the case uh, be, uh, with NASA because, according to their, their information, they didn't adequately respond to a FOIA request. And it was a long case, which they ended up winning. And you can go, people can go online, and they can read the whole account. I mean, there's several big reports that Leslie Kane did online. And I'm trying to think here a minute the, the titles of these, but give me a minute or two. And there's a second report on the final conclusion. I think it's called the the conclusion on the Kecksburg NASA. If they put inclusion of the Kecksburg uh, lawsuit in, they'll be able to find it through Google. And they can read the whole thing on there. It was very, very interesting. But all I can recall is that they did a huge amount of uh, search and NASA was involved in it. They were, from what I remember, they were very cooperative and they were trying to find information on the case. But a lot of records were missing from that time period. The, there were records that had been signed out and never returned, or boxes of data that may have had information that were missing. Interestingly, they, had, they received many newspaper clippings about meteor sightings over the country during that time period, but not one report on the Kecksburg incident, which was a huge national and local story, and not one, not one newspaper clipping about it, which was a little unusual. But it's a very, very intriguing case, and anyhow, it's something that there's still great interest in what it was. There's still much speculation, you know, maybe someday... Um, We'll have the answers to it, but it's been many, many years, and, you know, unfortunately, so many witnesses are passing away and have already passed away, and uh, it's just one of those unfortunate conclusions. But the, the one article that Leslie Kane wrote was very detailed. It, it was in the IUR of October 2005. It's called 40 Years of Secrecy, NASA, the Military, and the 1965 Texas UFO Crash, and it's online, so they can still read it. And the conclusion of a NASA lawsuit concerning the Kecksburg PA UFO case of 1965 is also still can be found on the Internet. Yeah, actually, I just found them real quick, uh, and I'm going to put them in the show notes. The, the, the crux of the NASA situation to me was, and it might be blown a little bit out of proportion, but was that they had lost the lawsuit and that a bunch of the evidence was missing, conveniently, seemingly. But as far as Kexpert, there's another story. It's a kind of a small snippet, but I found it extremely interesting. And that was one of the ophthalmologists in Pittsburgh or the eye surgeon in Pittsburgh coming across someone. Do you remember that story? Yeah, I do. And, and unfortunately, nobody ever was able to find out who the, the boy was that they uh, allegedly brought into the hospital. And I mean, the ophthalmologist that I talked to, I mean, he was a very, very well-known in the Pittsburgh area. He's the one that came, meet, came to me with the account. He was best friends with the other ophthalmologist who was involved in it. And from what I recall, it was just a, a boy that had been brought in, reportedly associated with a Kecksburg incident. He 
allegedly was must have been in the vicinity of where the object came down or was close to it somehow, and he had a very unusual eye injury unlike anything they'd ever seen before. And the Air Force officers uh, told the doctor that they could not put anything in writing about the incident, but it was a very interesting case. We heard of different stories like that, but in that particular case, we were not able to ever find out who that person might have been. Totally. That's one of the aspects that seems to occur over and over again involving some situations like these is that you have the main story and you try to figure out exactly what happened. But sometimes some of the details are so fascinating on their own and build such a, a picture, sometimes a contradictory picture, sometimes a confirming picture that it just, yeah, I've always found it endlessly fascinating. Do you happen to know anything about, and this is, so I grew up in Scranton, I'm a fellow Pennsylvanian, and I've been living in Philadelphia for quite some time now, but when I was younger, people joked and also told about a a UFO incident in Carbondale, Pennsylvania, and I was wondering if you were familiar with that at all. I am to a degree. That was long ago, and there were a lot of people who were actually on the scene involved in that years and years ago, and unfortunately, a lot of those people were gone now, too, but from what I recall, it was about 1974. Six somewhere seventy five. Yeah, I think it's a uh, nineteen uh, eleven eleven nineteen seventy four. Yeah, okay. Well, I knew it was around there somewhere. Totally. And uh, there were apparently a number of people saw something fall from the sky and something allegedly fell into a pond. And there, there's different stories about it. Some people swear they saw something large, metallic under the water. And I guess there's some reports that somebody claimed they've also saw the object being recovered and taken from there. So it's an interesting story. And there's some others who have done a lot more research on that particular one. I've heard different accounts, and I've heard some accounts that possibly it may have been a, a, a satellite that may have fallen, but I have no way to confirm that. And and I know there's other people who later followed up on it, and they found that there was some very interesting aspects of the story. But I believe Rick, Rick Fisher is a good researcher down around Lancaster, did a lot of research on it in more recent years. So it may be something you may want to follow up with him. Very cool. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. One uh, facet of that story I found super interesting and personal is that I grew up there and I know how the people there are, how we talk, everything. And apparently a large crowd had gathered at some point and people were like partying and waiting and arguing how they were going to drain this swamp. And I just think it's just a, a, a super interesting and, and kind of funny thing to picture, like all of the generation before me getting into that. As far as the future of uh, UFOlogy goes, what do you see kind of happening? Is it changed because everyone now has a phone in their pocket? Has the civilian networks of UFO investigation, like the repositories of information, as you as spoken about before, are they kind of being picked up by the younger generations, or are they kind of uh, changing to more of an Internet-focused situation? Well, it's hard to say. I, I think, actually, there was probably a lot more serious in-the-field research being done many years ago. I know some groups out there, smaller groups out there, but a lot of the bigger groups were more organized back in the, the 60s, maybe the early 70s, and there was a lot of us actually out there doing real on-the-scene investigations. You had big groups like uh, APRO and NICAP and then MUFON, and and there's still groups around. And you know, some people are doing some really good research out there, but the thing about it today is with the technology, you couldn't hide a case like Kecksburg or Roswell today. If the civilians got there with the capabilities, they might have to document something. So it, it'd be a little harder today to cover these things up. And, yes, we do get pictures. I mean, there's some interesting videos. There's still pictures come in. So we are getting some good documentation on some cases. But And so many of these incidents 
And I've talked to people just in the last few weeks have had encounters with various phenomena. And many times these, these incidents only last a matter of seconds. And the last thing they ever thought about, one, is taking a picture, and two, they wouldn't have had time to do it anyhow. And, of course, a lot of the sightings occur at night, not all of them, but a lot of them do at night, and a lot of the, ca a lot of the cameras don't have the technology to be able to capture something far away in the dark sky where they distort it so much that the pictures are useless. So it, it all depends. Every situation is different. Sure, totally. Uh, I've read, listened to some of your more recent interviews and know that you've been uh, very much into cryptozoology and the Bigfoot phenomena or, and things like that. And I, w what immediately came to my mind was that in the north-central part of the state, hardly anybody lives there. It's, it's wildly remote. I think it has the least amount of light pollution anywhere east of the Mississippi River. And I wanted to know if there was kind of a hotbed for those kind of cryptid sightings there. I haven't researched much into the UFO phenomenon, but I have some friends in the Pacific Northwest that have family members with stories and things like that. I, I can just tell you, I, I, my main focus in more recent years has been on the Bigfoot phenomena uh, and the cryptid reports coming in because there's been so many. But I've investigated them since the 1960s. And it's just a fascinating. I mean, I've interviewed hundreds of people who claim to have seen Bigfoot in Pennsylvania, including numerous ones in the last few years. Many of these, some of these have been daylight sightings, and many of them have been at close range. Wow. And very, very detailed accounts coming in. It's just amazing some of the reports that have come in. And I started investigating them, as like I said, back in the 60s, but then you have that major event in 1973, which my my solid invasion book, the whole book is focused on that series of events, which has some of the strangest documentations ever recorded. And first we had the biggest UFO wave ever documented. There were hundreds and hundreds of UFO sightings coming in all across Pennsylvania from January 1st to the last day of the year. And many of those were not high-altitude sightings. Many of them were low-level, large-structured objects seen close to the ground. There were reports of these things over major highways, hovering over vehicles on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. There were landing reports. And back in those days when you had no Internet and you had no cell phones, the news media was covering a lot of these cases. So there was multitudes of, of references to these sightings in my book and multiple, I'm sure, multiple news items still in the, in the files of libraries from local newspapers across Pennsylvania talking about all these sightings. And then you got into the summer of 1973 when we had the biggest Bigfoot outbreak ever documented. And that went on to early 1974. And that was just amazing. I mean, many of those Bigfoot sightings were in daylight. Sometimes you had more than one creature seen together. My teams would be out there day and night investigating the reports. And so in many cases, when we got on the scene, there was some physical evidence to document. We made many casts of footprints, for example, over the years. And it was an amazing time. But when I got involved in that back in those days, my initial idea on Bigfoot was that if these things are real, these creatures are real, they seem to be some type of unknown creature, some type of unknown animal. But as the events of 73 are beginning to unfold, so you've got to remember once again, reports are coming in from widespread areas. Most reports are coming initially to the police departments or our hotline. And these people had no idea that other people were reporting something similar. Many of the people were very shook up and frightened. And we began to see some very strange things, details came to our attention. One of the first things that we began to notice was we'd get out to some of these locations, 
there'd be trails of large footprints with big strides under all type of ground conditions, including a dip, depending on time of the year, even a fresh snow. Wow. And the tracks would go for a distance and suddenly stop, vanish, and disappear. Under the conditions we saw them, there's no way it could have been fabricated. Wow. And even this is even in recent years during the snows, we're getting the same kind of reports. There's even great videos people have taken of these huge tracks that suddenly stop and there's no more tracks. And that's one of the first things that began to make us scratch our heads. And then we began to notice, for example, we have a UFO sighting in a particular area. Within minutes, hours, or days later, we'd have a Bigfoot sighting or vice versa. And then cases began to come in from widespread areas of UFOs and Bigfoot seen together at the same time and place. One of the things we, you and I talked about a little bit ago was these strange objects of small sizes being observed and some with some Bigfoot association. Well, back in September of 73, north of Pittsburgh, there was an incident where two witnesses saw this seven, eight foot tall, huge air covered Bigfoot with white hair running across the road towards the woods, but in one of his hand, it had a glowing ball of light. And a short time later, an object came across the sky and projected a beam of light down into the woods where the creature ran into. So that was very fascinating. We began to wonder, what are we dealing with? And then more cases began to come in. And then it was one case, which is a, it's a very long, detailed case. I go into the whole story in my Silent Invasion book in great detail. One of the weirdest cases ever documented, but it was October 25th, 1973, up in Fayette County. Multiple witnesses. I got a call from the state trooper from Uniontown Barracks. He just came back from investigating the incident and he requested me to send up a team as soon as possible to the area. He felt that this there was some something still ongoing, possibly up in the field, up in the farmer's property where this had taken place. So you have multiple people around nine o'clock seeing this barn-sized red ball about a hundred feet off the ground, slowly moving downward. And the short part of the story is apparently it lands in the farmer's field. It's, it's on the ground or right above it. But as it's seen lower, it's now like a half a sphere, like a big white dome about 100 feet or more in diameter, bright white illuminating the area, making this high-pitched whining noise. And three witnesses, two young boys, and the son of the fellow who owned the farm, who was in his 20s, big fellow, decided to go up and see what was going on up there. So he stopped at his dad's farm and grabbed the 30-odd six and some ammunition before they went up. And when they finally made it to the top of the hill at the pasture, they're standing there because they can't believe what they're seeing because this large object is on the ground about 250 feet away. But as they're standing there concentrating, looking at this thing, their attention is drawn to a barbed wire fence about 75 feet away, and there's these two tall, hair-covered creatures walking upright one behind the other moving towards them. The one in front is about eight feet tall, the one behind is about seven feet tall, covered with long, dark, matted hair, kind of grayish-brownish hair. The arms are so long, hanging down almost to the feet. They have large, luminous green eyes, and they're making this loud, whining, crying baby sound. So the one young fellow is so scared he runs out of the field. The other two are standing there watching, and the one boy starts yelling at him to shoot him. And this fellow takes his first shot, which is a tracer. He didn't realize he had two tracer rounds. So tracer rounds, you just get that luminous trail. Mm-hmm. He fires the first tracer, there's no effect. He fires a second tracer, and interestingly, the largest of the two creatures makes this loud baby crying whine, 
raises his right hand out as though to grab the tracer, and the exact moment it does that, that large object in the field vanishes and disappears. It's gone. Most of the luminosity is gone. The sound stops. The creatures turn around and start walking back along the fence line towards the woods. At that point, the fellows start firing live ammo from his out 6 towards the creatures, and he said, I know I hit that big one. He said, I'll never forget how it kept staring at me with those glowing green eyes as I was firing into it, pumping live ammo into it. It has no effect on it whatsoever. So they ran back to the truck, went to their farmhouse, told the family what happened, took them to a neighbor's and called the state police. Wow. Once again, the short part of the story is the trooper arrived. They went up in the troop car. They're looking for evidence. The trooper told me the area where the object was on the ground was self-luminescent and glowing, about 100 feet or more in diameter. He said if he had a newspaper, he could have probably read it by the light coming off the glowing area. They went back to the state police barracks. Both the witness and the troop were taken to two separate rooms, separately interviewed, and then they called my team up to the area. And then later things happened during the night when my team got there. It's one of the strangest cases on record. That was the case that convinced myself and my team that we're dealing with something much, much stranger than just that unknown animal. There's much more involved. And I've worked on multitudes of cases now with Bigfoot, even in recent years, that indicate, as strange as it sounds, but the reason there may well not be any bodies or creatures is because they're not normal animals, for a lack of a better term, they might be interdimensional because there's a physical and a non-physical component to it. These things, whatever they are, they appear to come and go. They're here and they're gone. It's one of the strangest things I've ever come across, and it's not only in Pennsylvania. I found out from interviewing people from across the country and other investigators and other researchers, they've had the same kind of case going on for years and years, but so many people were afraid to talk about it being laughed at, they just kept quiet. But you're hearing more and more about it now in recent years. Yeah, that is quite a story. That's like uh, definitely difficult to internalize because of how uh, bizarre and intense it is. But so it kind of takes the regular or one of the more accepted Bigfoot theories that it is a, a leftover hominid or a gentopithecus or some type of animal that existed and puts a, uh, uh, you know, like as you said, an interdimensional or supernatural spin on it. I mean, it kind of makes sense. I know that. Well, it does make sense. There are many uh, North American indigenous tribes have kind of traditions that parallel stories like that and people have been writing about these things in all different human civilizations for a very long time it's just uh, such a an intense thing to go down it actually as far as firing at the beings it kind of seems like it parallels the skinwalker ranch story a little bit which is uh, something that i think that is the only other kind of thing that i've heard about a situation like this and you're correct if you read if you read what i started writing about in the 1970s and you read my silent invasion book you'll find a great deal of similarities between what you heard years later at the Skinwalker Ranch. And there are many, many cases all across Pennsylvania I've worked on in recent years, but a lot of people are not aware. There are other similar locations across the country and here in Pennsylvania, including one that's ongoing right now, where the phenomena seems to focus on and unusual things occur. Now, a lot of these sightings are sporadic. They can happen almost anywhere. But for whatever reason, sometimes the phenomena seems to focus on a particular geographical location. One thing I found many, many years ago is that many low-level, detailed, close-range UFO encounters and many encounters with Bigfoot and other cryptids occur in the vicinity of high-energy sources. So you've got many sightings around 
gas wells and gas lines and radio towers and high-tension power lines and power plants and reservoirs. It goes on and on and on. I have no doubt in my mind that a lot of this phenomena has an energy connection to it. And I have some of the strangest cases you've ever heard with Bigfoot and other cryptids, which strongly suggest whatever these things are, they're not normal, unknown animals. They're something much stranger. And again, it's not just in Pennsylvania. It's been going on for years all across the country and around the world, but so many people didn't want to talk about these strange things with Bigfoot. But I've been finding that it goes further. There may well be other cryptids as well, which is why you've got credible people encountering these creatures year after year. You never find any bodies and literal evidence, but these people are not all wrong. Something's going on. We just don't understand it. Totally. And as far as the anecdotal experience goes with those kind of cases, I've been fortunate enough to travel the world with our band, and I've run into some people who work for venues and some friends that are in bands that have told stories, and they're just kind of coming back to me now, that are somewhat similar cryptid stories from different regions of the world. There's one person in Germany that told me a wild story like that, and I have some very close friends in California that experienced some type of being cryptid, whatever it was, and off the small highway in Northern California. So, I mean, it does make sense. These things are, are kind of piling up and happening, and you guys have been on the front of that. Right. And, and I mentioned you, the, the researcher down there in uh, Eastern PA, Rick Fisher. And Rick actually did go public with an account that happened to him. It's, uh, it's actually in my Astonishing Counters book, my latest book. And um, this happened February of 2002. And he was riding down Route 23 around 6 o'clock in the morning towards Marietta, PA. And as riding down this dark road, he has his, uh, of course, his headlights on. He sees what looks like a small figure walking in the middle of the dark road ahead. And he thought it would look like a child from its size at the distance. But as he gets closer to it, he says it was about 20, 25 feet behind being, the, uh, well, he thought it was a, a person, but realized that this was not a child, but this was a small, hair-covered creature, about four to five feet tall, very thin, covered with thin black hair, like a skinny Bigfoot. And he said, apparently, the, this entity, whatever it was, didn't realize that he was there. He turned on his high beams. When it did, it suddenly turned around and looked directly at him, which had bright, glowing, yellow eyes, stared right at him, and he said, all of a sudden, it just physically vanished and disappeared right in front of them. And in that area, you had uh, the Native American legends uh, from the Alpid witches, what they call these small little hairy creatures they've seen uh, down around Chickie's Rock, down in that area. Wow. that I don't know what I would do in that situation, to be honest with you. I would probably be either paralyzed with fear or sprung, in, sprung into action. That's definitely uh, it's super intense to encounter something like that. Um, I wanted to ask you, it, it, besides reading your books, of course, and, and, and checking out your documentary, where can people become a little bit more engaged or involved with this phenomena, or where should they report it if they do encounter it, even if it happened years ago? Well, I get many reports, and I, I got an amazing secondhand confirmation just two days ago, I believe it was two, two three days ago, from a really interesting UFO incident that happened last year. And it was a very detailed, low-level uh, UFO case along the Chestnut Ridge of Westmoreland County with animal reactions involved in electromagnetic effects. So it was a very intriguing case, and this person has given me more information and seems to confirm that he also saw the same thing apparently the same night only a few miles away. 
So anyhow, that it's encouraging for people to report old reports because I may have other cases that can confirm what they told me, or I can learn from their reports the similarity in these cases. So if they want to report in Pennsylvania, uh, they can go to my website, which is stangordon.info. There's email addresses on there. The best one to contact me on is paufo at comcast.net. They can also phone me at 724-838-7768. My books are available on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com as well. Amazing. And I want to thank you so very much for joining me today, Stan. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you again. And there you have it. Thanks a million for listening, friends. I was Stan Gordon, the uh, famed UFO researcher. You can find everything you need to find at stangordon.info. There will also be a couple of links in the show notes. It looks like it's going to be a wild summer, and I can't wait to get through it and experience it with you all. Please shoot me an email, tom at futurefriday.net. I very much prefer that to social media engagement. I like the nuance. It's a new outlet for me. So if anything's on your mind, a couple of people have emailed me, and we've had some very interesting conversations. So if you have any guest ideas or you want to talk about something that we talked about on the show or you just want to have a chat, hit me up there. And until next time, we'll see you. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Weiland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.